welcome back to the Movement Fluidity Podcast, where we explore the keys to fluid and efficient movement for athleticism and pain-free living. Today, we are going to be focusing on the athleticism side of things and really give an explanation about what I think fluid movement is, because I named it this, I named the podcast Movement Fluidity, and I gave my background, but I haven't really dove into what movement fluidity means to me and how you can use this to improve your athleticism. If you're interested in supporting the podcast, you can check out the link in the description below. That would be great. Also, leave a review and share with a friend if you are enjoying the podcast. Okay, let's get into it. My definition of fluid movement would be synonymous with efficient movement. I believe this is the case because when you are being efficient in your movement pattern, it conserves the most amount of energy and gets you to to complete a given task in the quickest and most efficient amount of time. This means excluding any movements that are not required for the task. Why is this important in sports? Because conserving your energy increases the performance because you will be using less calories to you'll, you'll be burning less calories to complete the task and you will be doing it in the quickest manner this is essential for longevity in any sport or activity and also is highly correlated with performance the example i like to give here is a pencil on paper uh, especially a cursive when you're writing cursive so for example you need consistent strokes with no wasted movement for the most fluid cursive writing. From one letter to the next has to be a smooth and efficient path. You need to be using the least amount of possible effort. And when you are transitioning from one letter to the next, you have to be planning ahead for that next letter. Because if you don't account for where that next letter is going to start, then it's going to be a herky-jerky and inefficient way to get over to that next letter. And for a lack of a better term, it's not going to look very fluid. Another example of this would be for those drawings that you cannot pick the pencil up. These artists have to plan exactly how they're going to get into that next part of the drawing, but without picking the pencil up so they can't reset and they have to be as efficient as they can and also they need to have the ability to adapt on the fly so if they end up coming around a corner and they find another line that had already been there they need to fluidly and efficiently change their direction and complete the drawing or painting without lifting the pencil up. This is pretty similar to movement and fluid movement, if you really think about it. If I'm on the tennis court and I hit one shot on the left side of the court, it's all about how I react after that shot that is going to get me over to the middle of the court. And if I need to run to the right side, any wasted movement during or directly after that shot on the left side is going to impact how I get to that ball on the right side. 
Now let's get into what I would classify as the necessities for fluid movement. First would be skeletal alignment because if you have any imbalances and muscular imbalances, those muscles are not going to be in their optimal resting length, which is right around 55 degrees. Uh, that's proven because it is what's known as a neutral helical angle. It's technically exactly 54.44 degrees, and this puts the muscle at the optimal length to be able to contract and relax or lengthen. And if it is off to one side or another, it's going to have a bias towards contraction or stretch. So when we are talking about alignment, ideally, every, I mean, everybody's going to have slight differences due to their frame and their genetics, but having close to optimal resting length of muscles and proper skeletal alignment is going to be the first necessity. Next, I would go into talking about the fascia and making sure that it has close to proper balance of tension and integrity, which is called in the fascia world biotensegrity. If a part of your body has an increase in tension in the fascial system, that is going to have impacts on the skeletal and muscular alignment, and those muscles are going to have improper firing rates and probably cause pain. So those two go hand in hand, but fascia and skeletal alignment are very key. Next, what I just touched on is the firing order of muscles. So everybody obviously has the same muscles in their body, but if I'm walking down the road and a friend is walking down the road, those muscles may not be firing in the same sequential order. This can have tremendous benefits towards performance or in the other way it can cause pain and decrease in performance. The gait example that a lot of strength coaches go into is talking about the firing patterns of the glutes and the hamstrings and the quadratus lumborum which is a lower back muscle that aids in side bending. Ideally the firing rate should be glute, then hamstring, and then the opposite side, low back, or QL. In my case, I have the QL that fires first, or the low back, and then my hamstring fires, and then my glute fires last. Even though if you looked at an EMG study of muscular activation, maybe I'm having the same amount of activation in my glutes as the friend that's walking down the road. But since those other muscles are firing before the glutes, then it's going to be a very inefficient movement pattern. It's probably going to cause an increase in energy expenditure, and it's going to look like a herky-jerky movement because the sequential order of those muscles firing is not in the most efficient order. If you want to learn more about this and you want to test yourself, you can look up Calvin Dietz on YouTube. He is a strength coach out of the University of Minnesota, and it's called uh, a new glute pattern or glute firing patterns. So look that up if you're interested. 
and somebody let me know uh, what your firing pattern is. It's pretty interesting. And often now that I've learned more about it, I can notice it on people. And this proper firing pattern has so much to do with athleticism. Next, for sports-specific movements, obviously proprioception, your awareness in space, and hand-eye coordination are going to play a huge role. And the visual system and the inner ear, the vestibular system for proprioception, are so important in knowing where you are in space and where you are in relation to a ball in a sport or uh, other players. So I'm not really going to touch on this too much in this episode, but just know that without those two aspects, fluid movement and athleticism are going to be made much more difficult. Fluid movement is all about adapting on the fly, as I mentioned in the introduction. It's about the athletes that don't have to plan ahead on their movements, but they can actually adapt on the fly. My best example that I, I have seen in sports is in basketball, where you'll see somebody going down towards a basket, and you they go into a spin move, and they run right, in the, right into the defender, and you can tell that there was no reason for them to do a spin move there. But the only move that they maybe have in their bag, as they say in basketball, is that spin move. So maybe the right move there would have been a crossover or a spin move to the other side where there's open space. But that particular athlete was not adapting on the fly. They were going into that play with a set movement that they were going to do. Lastly, for fluid movement, it's all about having no fear. I mean, the best athletes I've seen they can go into any circumstance on the court or on the field and not be worried about getting hit or getting into awkward positions that could be even harmful. I mean, you you watch Michael Jordan and Kobe Bryant and how deep they get on their cuts on a step back. And they don't have any fear of they know that their body is capable of doing those things because they've done it before, but it is important to mention that they don't have any fear that they will get hurt or, or anything like that. Now let's get into what make the best athletes in the world the best athletes. This is a really interesting topic that I have thought about for years and have studied and watched so many sports and I am always drawn to the best athletes that are moving the most efficiently. And now I am diving into some of the literature and some of the concepts behind what actually make them the best athletes. When you watch them, they seem like they are dancing. They're typically not the strongest, not the fastest or the most explosive, although they are very high up there in those categories, but there's often guys that have better vertical jumps, they can bench more, um, they can clean more, or, or any, any of those measurable tests, a 40-yard dash. Often the guys that have the very top speeds in the 40-yard dash don't have a great NFL career. But it's the guys that still have very good speed, but then are great in these other categories that I'm about to talk about that are really the best athletes. 
I'm going to start this conversation by saying who I believe is the most efficient and fluid mover in all of the main professional sports. Let's start with basketball. Of all time, I would say Allen Iverson is up there. Kobe Bryant and Michael Jordan are also up there, but AI really had some cool moves and he was just so efficient with his movement. Next for the NFL, Lamar Jackson. Right now on the Ravens, I mean, this guy is just ridiculous. He can cut and slow down his movement, speed up on a dime, and it is, there's, I've never seen anyone like him. For the MLB, for baseball, Fernando Tatis Jr., that's my, one of my favorite players. Sadly, he's out this year with uh, PED suspension, and maybe that has a little bit to do with how great of an athlete is, but it's really too bad to see that, see him get busted, but still an incredible athlete, and I'm still going to watch him play. For soccer, got to go with Lionel Messi. The guy is pretty small, very undersized, and it's just his footwork and his creativity with movement that allows him to weave in and out of defenders and just create something out of nothing. For the NHL, the hockey, National Hockey League, Connor McDavid is the one that I have that has caught my eye the most. I really don't follow hockey very much, but just his ability to really look like a uh, figure skater at, while he's out there with still being explosive is absolutely incredible. Next for the UFC, got to go with Israel Adesanya, probably my favorite fighter out there. And if you watch this guy, he is just the definition of fluid movement. I mean, he has so many different tools in his bag that he can bring out on, on a dime. And he reacts to his opponent, and he can throw kicks, any sort of punches, spin moves. And he does it so efficiently and so calmly that I've never seen anything like it. Finally, my favorite sport. And my favorite athlete of all time, Roger Federer in tennis. And sadly, he just retired, but he had an amazing career. And if you've ever watched him play, it just looks so effortless. And unlike a lot of people in that he would play against, like Rafael Nadal, Nadal is trying so hard every point. He's just grinding the person out, and he's working so much harder than someone like Federer. It seems like Federer doesn't even break a sweat when he is out there because he is saving as much energy as he can. And every point he's getting to the next ball in the most efficient way that is possible. I mean, if there was a stat that could check how somebody got from one ball to the next for root of efficiency, he would be close to 100% just about every time. I'm going to leave a poll in the description below for who you think is the best athlete of all time and the most fluid mover. I'm really excited to see what you guys have to think. Maybe you'll have somebody on the same list that I had or somebody different. Maybe somebody I've never seen and I'll check that out and hope to find somebody that really blows me away. Back to what the best athletes do. I think it's very important, growing up especially, for athletes to play multiple sports 
This is one going to reduce the risk of injury. And it's also going to improve performance because especially as the brain is developing, if you are in a set movement pattern, say like I was a left-handed pitcher and you're doing only that motion over and over again, your system is not going to have many options when it comes to that sport or other sports because you're so set in those rhythms and routines. But if somebody played soccer where they got their footwork and they played football, well, those are in the same same season, but let's say basketball, and they get the plyometrics, the jumping up and down and the shooting, and then they go and play baseball and they get the hand-eye coordination and uh, just all the different aspects of that sport. And maybe they do track as well and they get the long-distance running and the sprinting from that that athlete is going to have so many more options that their system is familiar with that when they do play any of those sports, they're going to be able to move more efficiently and have uh, better, better movement patterns, essentially. If I had one regret from my childhood playing sports, it would be that I started to limit my, myself to just pitching and playing baseball. I wish that I had stuck with playing soccer and even gymnastics. That's a great one for awareness and space because that would have carried over so much better than just thinking the more I pitch, the more bullpens I throw, the better I'm going to get. It really does not work like that. So if you have a kid or a someone young in your life, I think it is the most important thing for athleticism to make sure that they play different sports and do all sorts of different activities. So I've told you all of these athletes and how I think they are the best in the world and the most fluid and efficient movers, but why is this? A talk that I just heard at the Fascia Congress in Montreal from Dr. Stuart McGill. He is the spine specialist of the world and he has done countless studies and worked with all of the best athletes in the world. He really put this concept into my head that these athletes are slingshots. It is all about their ability to pulse a muscle, to fire it, as well as relax it as quickly as they can. So it's not all about how fast you can fire muscles and how much force. It's about how fast you can fire and then relax. Strongly contracted muscles can't move very well. They are just, you know, if you, if you squeeze all your muscles and create as much force as you can, you're kind of stuck. Athleticism is all about creating that whip. It's about putting the skeleton in the position to allow these fascial lines and the muscular chains to pulse forward instead of relying all on muscular force. The best example of this that Stuart McGill talked about was GSP, George St. Pierre in the UFC, where when he would go for a kick on the bag, you would hear two, so you would hear as he braces his core and he's firing all of those muscles, and then you would hear the next as he releases all of those muscles and lets his leg more or less go limp to use all of that 
power that he stored from his core and his whole body to send that kinetic energy into the bag. McGill found out that the pulse, the first pulse, the contraction, that maximum contraction only takes 30 milliseconds and then is followed by the quick relaxation. So when you see athletes that are so rigid and maybe they're producing more force, but though their maximum muscle contraction is lasting much longer. The moral of this is to understand that faster contraction and relaxation cycles is what separates the best athletes from people that are maybe stronger, faster, or overall bigger, but they might not have the same level of athleticism. Now, how could we train this? That's the big question here. And it's what I'm trying to explore because personally, with my spasticity from CP, I can have very rapid contraction. And that contraction often stays around and those muscles stay contracted. But I'm trying to figure out how I can increase the relaxation speed so that I can have more of these qualities that elite athletes have. What I've found so far is basic strength training with speed work. So for example, on the bench press where you would use 50% of your maximum load and go through a three by three or some sort of low rep scheme where you can do the concentric and the eccentric, the up and down phase of the lift as quickly as possible. But I'm really focusing on that way down, that eccentric, because I know how to contract quickly, but it's going to take conscious control to turn that relaxation time into 30 milliseconds or whatever I need for improved athleticism. Another way to train this relaxation more dynamically is with an exercise such as dropping a tennis ball or a PVC pipe where you need to eccentrically load into a squat or lunge in any position and catch the ball as close to the ground as you can. And I'll make an Instagram video on this to show what I'm talking about, but it's all about decelerating as quickly as you can. So this could also be a sprint, a five-yard sprint into a quick deceleration. It's all about, in my, in my eyes, training more of the deceleration than the acceleration because most athletes, 90 to 100% of their training is working on that force output, that acceleration. But what they really need is to flip the script and to figure out how to decelerate quicker. If you ever watch Lamar Jackson as he is in the open field, he can turn on the jets quicker than anybody, but watch as he is waiting to figure out where he's gonna make a cut, he can relax and go into more of a jog and slow down quicker than anyone. He has mastered this relaxation. so. He can sprint and then he sees somebody coming. He can shut off those muscles and increase the speed of relaxation so that defender runs right by and misses that tackle. 
This concept of working the relaxation quicker is new to me and there is not any real literature on it. So it's still a work in progress and I hardly know anything about it, but that is what I can think of right now to increase the speed. Now, something, a couple things that I do know more about for training this involve swimming and water movements, as well as running and exercise on the sand. I'll start with the swimming and explain how this can be beneficial for the fluid movement and especially those relaxation cycles. So buoyancy is the upward force that acts on the swimmer in the water. This means the pressure is beneath the water and the humans are less dense than water due to the air in our lungs. Uh, this is why we will float, most of us. And the buoyancy of the water, as well as the resistance and the friction of the water, is going to essentially slow down any movement. So swimming aside, I'm going to talk more about plyometrics and kind of running and doing dynamic warm-up type things in the shallow end, which is what I have found to work best for me. I often do sprints and hurdle jumps and skips, different skipping variations in the shallow end because say for example on a skip, if I'm on the land on earth and I do the skip, gravity is going to bring me down quicker. And personally, I have a hard time loading that calf eccentrically, so pretty much being able to spring up and control on the way down as I land on that single leg, <clears throat> excuse me, leg. But if I am in the water in the shallow end and I take off to jump off that single leg, then I will have more time in the air, well, technically in the water, but before I hit the ground to relax that muscle, that calf that fired me up there and now I'm floating it has more time to relax before that leg hits the ground. And if I were to be doing this on the land, then I would have improper muscular firing rates and that calf would not be able to relax properly. But if I ease into it with starting in the water, ideally starting in higher water is gonna cause more of a floating effect and then I transition that into shallow water and then maybe onto the land, then I have taught my nervous system that this calf can relax. I just need to ease into it and telling it that it is okay to produce force and relax. And this is going to be the same concept as progressive overload, but just kind of in the opposite sense. So I'm going to be starting out where it's the easiest to contract and relax a muscle. And then I'm going to move to where the environment makes it harder and harder to do that until I am on the land. This is gonna increase coordination and it really is carried over to the tennis court for myself. And not many athletes use this, but I think it really could be a great tool. It also decreases the amount of uh, body weight that you're landing on. So it's gonna be low joint impact, 
It's going to be great for uh, recovery days when you still want to get some work in, but you don't want to really have a lot of that ground impact that's going to cause some more need for recovery time. The other main stimulus that has helped me tremendously with fluid movement stays pretty close to the water, and that is on the sand. So you can go to the beach. I mean, you're going to get both of these things, and you're going to get a, a hell of a fluid movement workout if you do things right. The thing about the sand is that it's going to respond to your foot. It's not going to be like the hard ground where your tendons are going to take a lot of the load and it's going to have no give because the sand will respond in all different directions and you don't know when there's a little divot this way or that way and you don't know exactly how your foot is going to come in contact with the sand. This is especially great because it doesn't give your mind time to think about where you're landing and which muscles need to fire. Your foot is just going to slide in all different directions and those little intrinsic muscles in your feet and lower legs and the different angles that it's going to cause on your hips and up to the core is unlike anything you can get on hard ground. It's especially important to really have an emphasis on the lower legs when training for fluidity because that is what comes in contact with the ground. The foot has very many bones and different ligaments and muscles that respond with a quick relaxation that you don't even think about. Your foot's going to pronate and move in all different directions. This is why I think that Beach volleyball players are some of the best movers that I've ever seen because all of their time is spent on this uneven surface and they get so much time with it. I really think that this would be a great tool for all athletes to use to increase performance. The last concept I want to talk about today that can help with fluid movement is music because as humans, we have been synced up with an auditory stimulus since we've been in the womb. Our mother's heartbeat started out with, we, we're always hearing it, and this aligns our body with a consistent beat from before we were even born. Now, if you're thinking about what music does nowadays, there's this concept called rhythmic auditory stimulation, which I have done some work with in the past. And it's a pretty cool concept, and they've actually done studies where people have been playing live music outside, and they measure people's cadence walking down the road. And most of the time, these people will subconsciously sync up with the beat of that music. They won't even think about it, but their mind is so in tune with finding a beat because it's going to save energy. It's going to save energy for their body to sync up with it. This is why if you are trying to find out how to have optimal firing pattern rates and increase that efficiency of movement, especially in a warm-up, having some good music that has a consistent beat can give your body something to reference and you're not even going to have to think about it, but it is going to sync up some of these movements and sync up the firing pattern of those muscles to move more efficiently 
and therefore fluidly. Okay, well, that is all I have today. I'm going to give a quick summary about what I talked about, just so you can have some takeaways. And I'm also going to leave those takeaways in the description below. So fluid movement is all about using the right muscles for movement and excluding any movements that are not required. It's all about being efficient. Why is this important? This is important because being efficient with movement is what conserves energy and will increase performance for any sport. The things that are the most important for this start with the skeletal alignment, the muscles near that optimal resting length, and a nice balance of the fascia. The firing order of the muscles, going back to that example of the gait cycle. And these be best athletes in the world, they really do act like they're dancing. They are not the strongest, fastest, or most explosive oftentimes, but they are like slingshots. They can pulse and fire muscles very quickly and relax them just as quickly. This is why I really believe that training in the strength and conditioning setting, especially with professional athletes that already have high force output, we really need to start focusing on that relaxation time. The work in the pool and on the beach and doing some of the speed training in the gym has been what I have found to help this, but I'm really just starting my journey on this. I think it's fascinating, but there's not too much to base my thinking off right now, so it's really going to be a lot of experimentation. If anybody, any of my listeners have any thoughts or experience with training like this or recognizing athletes that have similar patterns, let me know. I would love to have some great discussions. And thanks so much for listening. I have a few guests lined up for the next couple weeks, and I uh, look forward to it. And thanks for listening, guys.